Now on Documentary on News Talk, producers Sean O'Boyle and Morris Kelleher meet the astronomers working in a historic observatory in Castleknock, County Dublin. This is Looking Up. There is no disputing, there is no refuting. We're all indebted to Sir Isaac Newton. Because, because, because Sir Isaac discovered his genius Uncovered the nature of natural laws If an apple falls down on your head That is gravity, Sir Isaac said It strikes me that all objects in the universe Exert gravitational attraction upon each other My name is Peter Gallagher. I am Head of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies and also the Director of Dunsink Observatory. I'm fascinated by the sun and really my research group and myself spend our time thinking about how the sun works and we we use scientific instruments that are flown on spacecraft or else that are on the ground beside telescopes in order to make observations of the sun and we try to look at explosions that are happening called solar flares and then we try to use the laws of physics to try and interpret what we see and the reason we care about that is well the physics is unknown you know that's really what drives us I don't know the answer and to make those discoveries and see you know my PhD students and research fellows and so on making those discoveries really is exciting it's it's just a brilliant job to come into every single day and I and I and I've been doing this for 20 years and I just love it every single day and then I just also like equipment I like building bits and pieces I loved we built a radio telescope down in Burr Castle called LOFAR and the process of learning how to build it and being on a building site and erecting cables and antennas and turning it on and seeing it working and the computers bringing in data and the grad students analysing the data and, and, and writing scientific papers is to me almost magical. It's just amazing to see that kind of thing uh, being done. And then also, you know, we've just got a project funded by the European Space Agency uh, uh, to, to look at what are called CubeSats. They're about the size of shoeboxes. And we're going to design these small satellites here in Dunsink Observatory. Uh, we're going to design them and then we hope in maybe 10 years' time when we get all the technology right to fly them, to launch them on rockets to different parts of the solar system to look at the sun and to see these explosions on the sun. And that to me is just any kid's dream really. <laughs> The discoveries are abstract in many ways and, and they're not, you know, they're they're really important within solar physics and the solar physics community. But, you know, there are things that we've worked on where we looked at sunspots and sunspots are made out of magnetic fields and hot gas. But we were looking at the shape, really, of the magnetic field and we noticed that some sunspots that were just more complicated than other sunspots 
were producing more flares. And that was a, a thing. It's like being a weather forecaster and looking at a cloud and saying, hmm, that white puff, fluffy cloud might produce rain and that one will not. Well, it's the same with sunspots. And we were able to do some work on that to find the complexity of the magnetic field was more important or was important for predicting when a solar flare might happen. And that was one of the big discoveries that I think was really uh, interesting and useful as well because a lot of research is useless but can sometimes have utility and actually we have a heritage or a tradition of that here at Dunsig Observatory because William Rowan Hamilton who was our greatest kind of physicist um, uh, he, he worked here on apparently useless research and he did that for many many years and actually his research wasn't useful until maybe a hundred years after he died when um, it, these things called quaternions became useful for 3D gaming and for for the movie industry and for for orientating satellites as well. So, you know, uh, this research is, is driven by curiosity, not utility, but the utility will follow from us as human beings better understanding the world around us. I'm an old romantic, I'm afraid. I love old buildings. I love heritage. I I get a sense for place. I think it's really important. Um, A bland office building, I think, would not be an inspirational space to do this kind of research. Uh, You know, putting creative people and scientific thinkers into these buildings that have such heritage is 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 priceless actually and that's why these old buildings i think need to be um, protected and need to be used you know they are places of science they're almost cathedrals of science this to me is a very special place Sometimes it's, it's kind of hard when you're doing a Zoom call and you're talking about budgets and you're talking about budget cuts, hard things. And, you know, you walk out of your office uh, a bit depressed. But you walk outside and then you look at the old dome where there's the telescope. And you look up at the architecture of the building and then you think about, you know, maybe William Rowan Hamilton used to be in that office up there. Those kind of things you know break the mundanity of the slog of science uh, but they also act as places you're, you're just constantly wondering if <laughs> some of that will rub off on me you know and that's the hope is that maybe maybe you need to be as good as them as well maybe that's actually part of it you have to you have to continue on that heritage of great science being done it's your turn I want to bring more people into it. You know, I felt that West Dublin uh, needs something like this. I thought it was a great opportunity to bring people in from the communities around Blanchardstown, Finglas, Castleknock, Ashtown, to try and connect with those communities. And, and I thought this was a great place to do it. The other thing is that the building only lives and breathes 
if with scientists in it and I wanted to bring the scientists back into it. The room that we're in at the moment has two to three researchers in here. The entire building has maybe 15 people in it at the moment. We have another uh, small building beside here which maybe has three or four in it. So we actually really have fallen for Dunsink um, and, um, and it's great to have that life back in it. And as we open up more after post-COVID, we'll bring more schools and more members of the public into it. And we have great ambition to open it up even more so that we that we really see lots of people coming in at weekends and, and that's a real ambition for us. So the, yeah, there are some interesting things about being in what used to be a family home from 1785 up until about 1993 or 1995, there was a family living in this. It was very much a family home upstairs and then downstairs was where the observatory was. Um, that's that's a bit weird, I have to say. Um, so my office used to be a bedroom and uh, William Wordsworth stayed there for, for a month. Um, and you sometimes look out the window and you think, you know, what was William Wordsworth thinking when he looked out through these windows? So... I think, you know, all of those can't help but be inspirational for, for, for us. Right now, we're just outside what we call Observatory House on the Dunsink um, campus. So Observatory House is our big old building. It was built in the 1700s. Um, and that's where we have our normal sort of day-to-day research activities and our events. And right outside it is a gorgeous grassy field, um, which is pretty expansive. Um, so some beautiful old gardens looking out across the Dublin mountains. So we're really lucky because the observatory is quite high up back in the day for observing purposes. They wanted nice clear skies. So we're a bit of on a hill and we have beautiful views across Dublin. Um, so we've got a clear day, some clouds, um, but we can see nice and clear. That's a beautiful view at the moment. My name is Dr Sophie Murray. I'm a technical officer at Dias Dunsink Observatory. I support research activities and communication activities across the entire astrophysics section. So my background is in one particular area of astrophysics, but I actually help all the astrophysics researchers nowadays in their day-to-day research. We're doing a bit of my own research as well um, in uh, space weather. It's a, it's a funny term. I mean, lit, you could literally think of it as weather in space, but of course there's no weather in space because it doesn't have an atmosphere. But we're talking about changing conditions. So, you know, on Earth, you've got your rainy, your sunny, your cloudy days that are sort of like day-to-day changes. And then the more, you know, extreme tornadoes or hurricanes or whatever. We can also have those kinds of um, conditions happening in space. So the sun gives us our light and our heat but it's a very active star it erupts material and radiation and that can impact us on earth and and disrupt our technologies our infrastructures and so those changing conditions that are being caused by changing conditions on the sun is what we call space weather There's two parts to space weather. There's the solar side of things. You study the sun and you monitor changes happening. And then um, on Earth, you study the impact of those changes. So 
Actually, at Junsink, we have some ground-based uh, instruments. So we have magnetometers. We dig a hole in the ground. We put an instrument in it. And we measure the magnetic field changes of the Earth, which shows us whether the sun is impacting us today. And um, we also have antennae that measure changes in the Earth's atmosphere. So we send out radio signals and bounce them off the top of the atmosphere. And that comes back to us and tells us if things are happening that are a little bit more different than normal. So ground-based instruments will tell us that. We also have satellites in orbit out in space too. I analyse images, I analyse data sets coming in on the computer, so I actually don't really have that much practical experience with telescopes. So, you know, I'll look at, at spacecraft images, but there are other solar physicists who are stationed at solar telescopes around the world. And luckily for them, unlike the other astronomers who have to get up in the middle of the night to do their, you know, observing, they get to do it during the day. They just need cloud-free skies. But they will set up the telescopes. They usually have various different filters to look at the sun through different wavelengths of light. So if you look at white light, you're looking at the surface of the sun. If you go up through the different wavelengths to ultraviolet light, um, extreme ultraviolet light, you can look at the solar atmosphere. So they'll use different filters on their telescopes to look at different features on the sun. Um, but you are limited, of course, by the atmospheric conditions. The observatory has quite a history of solar physics, of space weather, and particularly the observatory house, which is where my office is, you do have the solar physics group. So, you know, we have people looking at uh, features on the sun, the eruptions that cause space weather. They don't necessarily just look at the sun, they might look at what we call the heliosphere, that bit in between the Earth and the sun, so tracking these eruptions as they travel out through interplanetary space, as we call it. And then also the space weather scientists, so those, those people who dig those holes in the ground and measure the Earth's magnetic field, they're based in Observatory House. And we've got planetary scientists as well. So they're actually, they do look at space weather. When I talk about space weather, I always think the Earth because that's what I'm, I'm used to studying. But there is space weather on other planets too. So we have planetary scientists who are particularly interested in Jovian systems, so Jupiter, Saturn, and those other planets that can be impacted by the sun as well. And we do have another building here, um, which we call Dunsink House, and they um, work on massive stars, so stars in other solar systems, and they do a lot of computers, so they're kind of modelers, they look at computer simulations as well. In academia, if you're in a university or something, obviously there's often lots of old buildings and there's some history associated with it, but I think Dunsink's quite unique because it is an old observatory. We have had, you know, researchers in the past just living here and working here for hundreds of years and um, it's a bit more steeped in history than the usual location I would say. It's a unique place to work. You know, I will generally, my day-to-day -day work is on a computer. So, you know, I will be sitting there staring at the computer all day, but behind me there's probably a bunch of random old artifacts in a bookcase from, from researchers who are working here 100 or 200 years ago. So that's a pretty cool thing um, and that's a rare thing to have. And just generally, I think it's fascinating to see the links between some of the researchers and the work they did are still happening today. You know, one of our famous rooms inside is the Hamilton Room. He was a mathematician and he invented um, some equations called quaternions, which describe rotation in 3D space. Um, 
which are really useful for spacecraft orientations. So that's, you know, stuff that was invented a really long time ago in Dunsink that we're still using today in our research. And a lot of our researchers, you know, us as solar physicists use spacecraft, the planetary researchers are using spacecraft. So it's quite cool that it's all actually interlinking our research together in some really basic science that was discovered here a really long time ago. So this is right at the back of the observatory house and there's two pillars here. Now these are quite interesting pillars. They used to be in what we are now use as our meeting room called the Meridian Room. Um, but they used to be inside that room back in the day and a telescope was uh, mounted on top of it. There was a, a fire in that room in the 70s and um, so when they were clearing it out they brought the pillars out. And um, so that's actually marking, the, between the two pillars is actually marking a meridian line. So that's a, an entirely different story, um, but, uh, but Dunsink used to set Dublin Mean Time. So in between the pillars is in between two time zones. But on the pillars nowadays, rather than, than a measuring time, you're seeing some instruments. So on the right-hand side are some cameras. They kind of look like security cameras, but they're actually meteor detection cameras. So these are looking out on wide-angle lenses and trying to catch meteors in the night sky. We're just walking into Observatory House now, which is our main building, um, where all our researchers work and also where we host our public events. So here's the main hallway. And on the right-hand side is our Hamilton room. Um, so this is a room kind of dedicated to artifacts, paintings, things related to Sir William Rowan Hamilton, who was a former director here at the observatory. The director of the observatory would live and work here. Um, so they generally live upstairs, which are actually now our researcher offices and libraries, um, and then they'd work down here. And down there is the Meridian Room, which we use for our you know, general meetings as researchers. It's a bigger room, we can hold quite a lot of people, and we'll have our public talk there. And the cool thing about it is the time corridor, which has some really nice old clocks leading up to the main room. Let's continue on down the hall, and I'll take you down to the solar room. Um, the solar room is where we house our coelostat, um, which is one of our really cool um, artifacts that we have here in the observatory. So this is the coelostat. Um, so back in 1919, um, a, a group of researchers, including um, researchers at Dunsink, would have gone um, and travelled with the coelostat all the way to South America for a solar eclipse that was happening. And they used the coelostat to prove Einstein's theory of relativity. So they took images of the eclipse, and you can see in front of us this massive image here of the sun, and the sun is blocked. Um, and this kind of reminds me of the kind of, actually, images we use as solar, solar researchers. We call them chronograph images. They block the sun to see what the solar atmosphere is like. Um, but yeah, this is, you wouldn't believe it was from 1919. It looks so, so good. You can see some of the features. Um, but they used images of where the stars were aligned and bent from this image, which you can only tell during a solar eclipse, and um, that proved Einstein's theory. So pretty, pretty cool to have this piece of equipment here in the room. I'm Jeremy, 
and my office is here in Dunsink. My research focuses on looking at radio emission from other stars in our galaxy. I look at these really small stars called red dwarfs or M dwarf stars. They're a little bit smaller than half the mass of our sun. Um, and they're very, very active. And what I mean by that is they regularly produce flares and coronal mass ejections, which you might sometimes see in the news from the sun, uh, but on a much larger scale, much higher energies. Uh, M dwarfs are also very interesting because we've detected a lot of exoplanets around them. They're very uh, suitable for detection via the transit method, which is when a planet fa passes in front of the star and dims the light that we see from it. Uh, but we don't really understand the environment around these stars and whether these planets, which orbit much closer, uh, can sustain life. Because essentially they're constantly being bombarded by energy from these stars. Um, and a good way to study the mechanisms powering the uh, emission from these stars is in radio waves. And that's what I do. Oh, it's incredible. I mean, my desk is actually based in William Rowan Hamilton's old bedroom. You look outside my office window and there's a 200-year-old telescope. Uh, it's really inspiring. Yeah, if you go into any room here, you're likely to find uh, uh, an eyepiece used by someone in the 1800s or like that pieces of a telescope used in the 50s and 60s that was in South Africa. Um, and I think that's an experience you don't necessarily get in other buildings all the time. So it, it, it's sort of... It really inspires you to not just like work on your current research, but remember the history and how far astronomy's come even in the last 50 or 60 years. What is the Milky Way? Stars along the rim of our galaxy. is a flat spiral composed of billions of stars. The nearest galaxy to ours is a million light years away. The farthest we can see are about a billion light years away. And somewhere among the billions of galaxies, there could be planets like ours with life on them. This is Documentary on News Talk, and this is Looking Up. A shooting star is not a star, is not a star at all. A shooting star is a meteor that's heading for a fall. A shooting star is not a star, why does it shine so bright? The friction as it falls through air. Produces heat and light A shooting star or meteor Whichever name you like The minute it comes down to earth It's called a meteorite 
I'm Professor Katrina Jackman and I'm the head of the Planetary Magnetospheres Research Group here at the Dias-Dunsink Observatory. My group looks at planetary magnetospheres, which are magnetic bubbles in space, which form around magnetised planets. So Earth has a magnetosphere and it's what protects us from what we call space weather, which is intense activity on the sun and the blasting out of solar material into space. And the Earth's magnetosphere acts like a magnetic shield to protect us from the solar wind flow, which is constantly coming off the sun. I love it. I look forward to coming to work every single day. It's really good to work with creative and clever and motivated people who are all wanting to find out more about how space works. And I find that really inspiring. It's lots of lists of numbers. <laughs> it's, it's not that pretty when it's sort of raw tables of numbers on your computer. And actually, sometimes you can forget that you know, what you're doing is analysing measurements that probably nobody else in the world has looked at yet from a planet that's halfway across the solar system. But the day-to-day -day reality is that a lot of what we do is number crunching and computer programming, and we're taking these you know, raw data sets, these tables of numbers, and we're converting them using some very fancy data processing and pipelines into these beautiful images and maps and, and graphs and plots of how different properties change as they're measured by these orbiting spacecraft. are in one of the offices, an office that a couple of my team uh, usually work in. And it's a room that is filled from floor to ceiling with books, with books which cover a range of topics. I'm looking at some of the spines. There are books about all aspects of astronomy, space science, celestial mechanics, plate tectonics on, on other planets. I can see astronomical sort of almanacs, guides to the night sky, observing guides, and of course, a whole range of professional journals. So it's a really beautiful environment just to look around and be surrounded by so many books. In terms of solar system studies and even just looking at other planets in our solar system, you know, there's a long history of looking at Jupiter and Saturn, for example. Like Jupiter is a great planet to observe in the night sky, super easy to see. You don't need a fancy telescope. But of course, the better your instrumentation, the better view you get. But there certainly are maps here at Dunsink of Jupiter, and particularly of Jupiter and what we call the Galilean moons, which are four moons which orbit relatively close to the planet. And on successive nights, you can see the kind of orbital dance that those moons take around Jupiter. It's really nice to look back at the old records and think about people here using the telescope to look at Jupiter and to look at its moons. And it's so nice to think that now 
myself and my team are here and we're looking at Jupiter with a spacecraft that's that's right there or we're looking at Jupiter with X-ray telescopes which are in orbit around the Earth and so we have new eyes on a system that's been fascinating people for generations. And quite a few of the students here are really good at getting hands-on with the telescopes and so it's a regular occurrence here that at coffee break they will set up for example the solar telescope and we might look at sunspots on the sun or sometimes you know in the winter when it's dark when we're still here they might get the telescope out and you know we've got some great images of the moon or we've got some great images of of Jupiter and the Galilean satellites so it's such a privilege of course to be able to use something like the Grubb telescope at work just to have a, a peek at Jupiter so this clock was the keeper of Dublin Standard Time and uh, it was set by the passage of stars over the observatory in the Meridian Room which we'll go into in a second but the the, the clock um, had a wire and James Joyce wrote about this wire um, and it sent the signal into the city centre and uh, it went to the central bank to Trinity College and also to Dublin Port and there was a time ball on Ballast House beside O'Connell Bridge and I would drop at one GMT every single day triggered by this this clock and uh, in Ulysses James Joyce talks about this and he says time ball on Ballast House is down Dunsink time the clock is worked by an electric wire from Dunsink must go out there and so it was very much part of what Joyce was interested in uh, and um, uh, what Leopold Bloom was interested in, in fact, about parallax and time and, and so on. But we can open up the clock here and you can just see the workings of it are just absolutely beautiful. It's kind of electromechanical and I can gently move this pendulum here and the clock will tick. And that'll, that pendulum is very well balanced and it'll tick away for uh, a few days actually just after me touching it there. Yeah, well, in this cabinet here, uh, we're in the Meridian Room, and the Meridian Room was where the transit of stars was looked at, and we have the original books that were um, kept by the astronomers, and this book here on the left, I'll just open up the cabinet. This book here on the left is, uh, this is a vellum covered book, so we have to be kind of careful with it. But if you open it up here, the first uh, entry here is observations made at the observatory belonging to Trinity College Dublin by John Brinkley, Andrews Professor of Astronomy. And if we take, we move the pages along gently. And the first entry is actually in the year of 1791. And what you can see here are the positions of the stars um, that were recorded from this very room in 1791 and signed at the very bottom by Brinkley. But you can see Arcturus, Libra, 
um, uh, Betelgeuse, Procyon, all these different stars uh, that were recorded. And he was meticulously recording this, these stellar positions. And they then used these to try and work out the distances to stars. And they'd compare these observations to uh, observations made in Paris and in London, at Greenwich uh, and so on. And so this was a really important function. Um, not only did they measure the distances to the stars, they also used these observations to set longitude uh, on top of time. So this other book uh, that I'm going to show you, so that book is, is by John Brinkley. He was the Astronomer Royal for Ireland from 1790. And this other book is Sir William Rowan Hamilton's book. Uh, a transit book and I was re just really interested um, in the observations that were made I noticed on many of the pages there was an initial uh, in many of the pages and I'll just try and leaf through and find uh, some of them ah there we go okay so what you can see here is there's an A and an A and an A and then if we go go through you can see A again and then there's a H, and then there's an S as well. I was just wondering what on earth these were. So eventually, for some reason, I looked at the very back of the book, and there was a little note, and this is a H is Professor Hamilton. A is Viscount Adair, who was actually a paying student. Uh, Trinity weren't very happy about this, and he wasn't allowed to pay, have any paying students anymore after, after that. Then there's a, a, a Mr. Thompson, uh, and then this one, this is what really got me. There's two Ms or Miss Miss entries here. So there's Miss Sydney Hamilton and then a Miss Hamilton G. So these were his sisters. And Hamilton didn't like observing. In fact, he preferred the theoretical physics and the mathematics of astronomy. But he trained his two sisters to come and work here. And they were making the observations. Actually, the handwriting is very good and it, that kind of got me thinking because Hamilton was very sloppy. He was known to be quite messy, very accurate in his mathematics. But his sisters were doing the observations, but they were also reducing the observations and they were analysing the observations. So they became accomplished observational astronomers in 1830s uh, and in the 1820s uh, here in Dunsink Observatory. And that, to me, was a real eye-opener about, you know, young well, maybe young women involved in, 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 in astronomical research. And it's not something that we write about, but it's, in, it's, 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 it's captured in those transit books. If you look up at the ceiling, you can see that there's um, uh, shutters, and those shutters would be opened up, and then between these two semicircular windows, there was a large telescope called a transit telescope, and then the astronomer would look out through the along the telescope, out through the windows, and look at the transit of stars as they went from east to west across the sky. And then the assistant would look at the clock and mark, he would go, okay, Arcturus has just passed overhead and they'd mark down the time. And then the time of transit in London at Greenwich or in Paris would all be recorded and they'd uh, compare them. And if you knew the time in London and the time here, it turned out to be 25 minutes and 21 seconds different between Greenwich 
and Dunsink, and that then helped us establish our longitude very precisely and our time. And then mariners would set their clocks as they set off uh, around the oceans uh, for trade and so on. And but then also financial transactions between. Dublin and other places around the world would be accurately known and so you could trade. So it was really important to you know, trade and navigation to get your time right and your position right. When Real- William Rowan Hamilton was here Uh, He wasn't a great observer. He was very good at doing his theoretical work. But the equipment was run down over that period and it wasn't um, uh, modernised as it should have been. So when he died, a a new uh, uh, director was hired and he built this uh, telescope. Um, and this this dome that we're looking at here, there's a lovely copper dome on the top of it, uh, but inside there's a grub telescope, and it's the biggest refractor um, in Ireland. And it, again, was used to make really accurate posi- uh, measurements of the positions of stars. And once you know the position of a star really accurately, um, if you measure it six months later, you'll find that the closer stars have moved a little bit, and the more distant stars don't move at all. And that's called parallax. And so with this telescope, they were able to make really accurate measurements of parallax and hence distances to stars. So that was the, the, the main work of, this, of this, this telescope. And it still works fine. And we use it for members of the public. They come in, our students use it, and it's used for training. So I'll just go ahead and open up the, the door. Welcome to the Grubb Telescope and the the South Dome. Um, The South Dome, actually, it's not because it's in the South. It's named after Sir James South. And Sir James South gave the main lens for the telescope to Trinity um, in recognition and celebration of the third Earl of Ross becoming Chancellor of the University. And actually, he wrote a note to the fellows at Trinity saying, "Um, I hereby enclose to celebrate you know, the third Earl being made Chancellor, but please do not give it to William Rowan Hamilton because he'll break it. <laughs> what a terrible thing to say, because he just didn't trust Hamilton to use such a, you know, beautiful piece of glass. Um, anyway, when Hamilton passed, the next director came along and um, uh, got the telescope made by, by Grubb. And Grubb were it based in Rathmines. Uh, there's a lane there called Observatory Lane, and that's where this telescope was made. And the Grubbs actually made telescopes for many, many pl- uh, observatories around the world. So there's, there's one in Vienna, there's one in Melbourne, there's one in Sofia. Um, there's one, uh, you know, there are many observatories around, as there's one in Armagh, in fact. So they were world-renowned for the quality and workmanship of their telescopes. So the dome still works, so I, we can walk over to the far side and I'll open up the dome and you can just see the way it still works pretty well. So this telescope was useful for measuring the positions of the stars. It was useful for about 50 years up until about 1900. 
And the location in Ireland wasn't great. And also people were building bigger and bigger telescopes. So, you know, the best telescopes in the world ended up being in Southern California at the top of mountains and the mirrors ended up being, you know, two metres wide. And so this telescope just did not become, it became useless for researchers, research around 1900. But nowadays we use it for members of the public or, or for fun. Uh, if you look through it and, and you look at the moon, it still looks amazing. You can see small craters on the moon um, it's cool to look at Jupiter or Saturn if you look at Saturn you can clearly see the rings of Saturn uh, Jupiter is just always great because there's four moons Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto and you can see those moons and if you look every night you can see the moons moving just like Galileo did in 1609 so there's really nice things you can see we do bring members of the public in uh, uh, on, on our open nights uh, but it's usually cloudy, unfortunately, and that's one of the reasons why telescopes like this are not useful anymore. So, on those open nights, this is what we do. We open this. We usually get a member of the public to open the dome up, and I'm just pulling on this rope here, which is turning a wheel and then opening up the main shutters. And we can see the clear blue sky there. We're during the middle of the day here at the moment. Um, but you can see the telescope um, more clearly there. We'll walk over to the, to the eyepiece, and the telescope still runs uh, perfectly fine and, and you know you can see that just with a little bit of a touch the telescope moves from left to right uh, no problems whatsoever and um, the other thing that you have to do at night is uh, is rotate the dome around uh, because the sky the stars are, are moving relative to us so we just turn it on uh, this is mechanized now there's a, a motor behind us so if I turn that on and then I can move the dome around. So that's the telescope dome now pointed over to the east. So at, at night the stars start their passage across the sky on the east and then as the evening progresses then we move the dome round to the west and we can follow the stars and with the clock and with the telescope we're able to keep fixed on a particular star uh, and then make you know detailed observations of it. Now, as I said, that's the way it was done in the past. We don't use it for research anymore, but it demonstrates all of the principles that we still use today. Our modern telescopes would be a billion euros, and that's that's the kind of thing. And and universities can no longer build them. This telescope was built by a university. States can't even build a telescope anymore. It's now you know, consortia of all European nations like the European Southern Observatory who build these telescopes down in Chile. You know, so it's, it's a major investment in order to do contemporary astronomy. But this demonstrates all the principles. Every time I come in here, it's like uh, Christmas morning opening up your presents uh, every single time. But I really should get a camera here because almost everybody who walks into the dome says, wow. I just, I'd love to have a thousand wows of people walking. They walk in, their mouths open, they go, wow. Because people have never been in a dome by like, I mean, I think maybe we're 10 metres high here. It's, it's, it's a hemisphere. 
Um, there's a, teles- a large telescope that's maybe you know, three metres, four metres long. Um, it's unusual. It's a space that people have never been in and it feels weird. The sound is weird in the room as well. So yeah, every time people walk in, they go, wow. And every time I walk in, I go, wow, as well, because the engineering of this was, was pretty wow uh, as well. And the science that it did was pretty wow. And the building itself, the architecture is, is pretty wow as well for me. Oh my God, what is my favourite thing? I, I love the parkland setting, uh, the architecture of the buildings. I think they're really quite magical and they're unique in Ireland. There is no parkland setting like this with an observatory in it. Uh, the views out, out over Dublin City at night are just amazing. And I hope we protect that parkland set, setting of, the, of, the, of where, the tele, where the telescope and the observatory sits. So as the city develops, as it has to, uh, I just hope that there's a respect for the night sky that we have around here and the architecture and parkland setting that we have. So I, I really do hope that um, uh, that that... that that magic is is kept for future generations because you can't recreate places like this. They are unique and we 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 don't have many places like this. So I, I really do hope that um planners and, and so on just appreciate that heritage. There's a lot going on still at the observatory, and I think that also makes that park and the observatory kind of a unique thing for the people of Dublin and people of Ireland. I think what's most important is the people that you work with and proper funding. You know, you need people to be attracted into work together and you need the right funding. So, you know, that that's really important. This is a, is is an amazing thing to have though you know having the people and having the funding and having a location put them together and that's an amazing cocktail to create new science and and I think we're very lucky to have this and I I hope that continues on for the future Why do we all want to be up there up there What is there to do or see up there up there Because we're people, members of the human race. We thirst for knowledge, we, we want to know. And we do know that new frontiers and discoveries are waiting for new pioneers and scientists way up there.
Looking Up was produced by Morris Kelleher and Sean O'Boyle and was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland as part of the Sound and Vision Scheme. For more documentary and drama, visit Newstalk.com.